0: Josh Walters. I'm the campus pastor here at the Mount Pleasant campus, one of the teaching pastors here at Seacoast, and I hope you are having a great 4th of July weekend. How many of you are having a good one so far? Come on, a couple folks. That's great. I want to welcome you if you're joining us online or in a venue at an off-site campus, wherever you might be. We are excited That you are here to worship with us as well. Hey, I want to start off with some good news to celebrate. Last weekend at all of our campuses, we had baptism, and we had 221 people take that next step of obedience (laughs) and baptism. Isn't that incredible? Man, so excited about that. We actually partnered with uh, the North Charleston campus here in Mount Pleasant, and we had an ocean baptism at IOP County Park. I brought a picture that I want to share with you. A good friend of mine named Ad got baptized. He's 72 years old. And what I love about this picture is that you, you get to see that we also had a few accidental staff baptisms. And uh, <laughs> Katie... Katie had been baptized before, but she had five additional baptisms that day. So I'm excited to report. I think it's finally stuck, and uh, we didn't lose anyone in the ocean, so that's something else, <laughs> something else we can be happy about. Well, for the last few weeks, we've been in a series called Summer of Love. The original Summer of Love started around 1967 in San Francisco, and it was essentially a social experiment gone bad focused on the indulging of self in the name of love. And so, for the last few weeks here at Seacoast, we have been doing nothing quite like that, uh, but we have been doing a study through the book of 1 John. 1 John is at the very end of your Bible, and it actually serves as a letter that was written by a guide named John and passed around to churches in the region to present this author and creator of love. In fact, in chapter 4 of 1 John, he says that God is love. He embodies love love. And because of that, the last few weeks, we've been looking at the implications of that in our lives. Last week, Pastor Chip taught us that because God is love, I can love myself. This week, we're going to take it a step farther and look at because God is love, I can love others. But before we do that, why don't you join me? Let's take a minute and pray. God, we thank you so much that you are love. I'm thankful, God, that you loved us so much that you would send your son to die on the cross for our sin, that we might have a relationship with you. God, may we encounter your love today. I pray that you would show up, that your word wouldn't return void, that you would do something in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives that only you could get the credit for. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple months ago, Team Walters got our first family mascot. We picked up a dog. A dog. Uh, my daughter Abigail has been asking for a dog for, uh, for years now. So about three years ago, I told her, fine, okay, we can have a dog. Uh, but I've got two requirements. One, it has to be a golden doodle because daddy's kind of allergic, got some issues going on there. I don't want to be dealing with smelling no dog and sneezing and all the stuff that comes with that. And the second requirement is that you have to pay for it. And so I thought the second requirement would be enough to deter the dream. Uh, unfortunately, it only fueled to, mo- to motivate her. <laughs> and so for three years, every Christmas, every birthday, every chore, every dollar she earned, every dime she found, went to saving up for this dog. There would be a couple times where we'd go out to dessert, go get ice cream or something as, as a family, and all the kids had some money and they would pay for their own. And Abigail would be like, no, no, I'm good. Uh, I'm going to pass, pass on the ice cream this time so that she could save up for the dog. Well, a couple months ago, she had gotten awfully close. Daddy pinched in just a, in just a little bit and we found a golden doodle from a breeder outside of Atlanta. I brought a picture to show you. Ah. Oh, what an angel. I'm telling you. I'm going to tell you something. 95%. Of having this dog has been misery. <laughs> it's been awful. So much work, training to to sit, not to bite, to drop, to stay, all the stuff. It's been miserable. I've had to spend so much time cleaning up number three all over my house. That's a combination of number one and number two. You know what I'm talking about? She eats breakfast and lunch and dinner in our laundry room because I don't want the dog food smell all over the house. Seems to work out well. However, When she finishes eating her meal, she's taken a liking to also chewing up my baseboard, windowsill, and bench in the laundry room. I'm telling you, it's the last thing I want to be doing with my life right now. It is. But I keep telling myself, I'm making my daughter's dreams come true. And all of you keep saying, oh, you're going to love it. One day she's going to be your best friend. They give so much love. I'm like, I'm not feeling the love. (laughs) I'm not excited about having this dog yet. Well, a couple weeks ago, we went to Petco. We've been going to Petco to get her, her vaccinations, and um, they've got a mobile clinic there, and it is an adventure all in itself because 5, 10, 15 people all with their pets. Some have one dog. Some have two or three dogs. The, the dogs are all playing, fighting. Leashes are getting tangled. Adults are trying to talk. My kids have zero boundaries, so they're spooning strangers' dogs, you know, petting them, kissing them, getting toys off the shelves to give to them. I'm like, don't touch, no, I'm sorry. It's just, it's a, it's a hot mess. And so at one point I realized we couldn't find our five-year-old Asher, which isn't altogether uncommon. And so start looking around, Asher, you know, and turn around and Houdini has left the building. And at Petco, um, the, uh, the walls outside is half brick and half stucco. And somehow Homeboy has scaled the wall and is standing flat up against it on the brick. And so I, I walk outside and get him say, son, we, th- we don't do this, you know. And as I, as I walk back inside, Katie is standing there talking to a good friend of ours named Reagan Cammer, and right behind her is Sunday. And right behind Sunday on the shiny white tile floor of Petco is a large stack of dog poo. And so I'm like, what? I got a kid in one hand. I got a Starbucks in the other. I'm like, I know what to do when this is in my neighbor's yard. You know, that you have to have those bags and you got to stand there for that like awful pause of shame while your dog's going. <laughs> the neighbor drives by and it's like, I know, this is awkward. <laughs> yeah. Then you got to bend down and pick up the mess and carry that stench all the way back to your house. It's like, I love having a dog. This is great. You know, I know what to do with that when it's in my yard, but it's in the middle of a department store. I'm like, I'm not equipped for this. What do you do? I don't know. And so I did what any of you would have done. I treated it like it was an abandoned bag in an airport, you know, (laughs) called in a bomb squad. You know, the only thing worse than, than poo in a department store is you stepping in poo in a department store. And I was, I was worried about that, so I, I kind of veed my feet around it. I got Asher in this hand, a Starbucks in this hand. I'm like, hey, don't, don't walk here. Don't, don't, excuse us, you know. So everybody's kind of looking like, oh, hmm, They haven't trained her well yet. So at that point, I'm figuring out, what do we do? I don't know. And at that point, Reagan had found a tissue, a paper towel, I don't know what it was. She scooped down and she picked it up off the floor, and as she went to walk away, and I caught a whiff of what she was working with, the thought that passed my mind was, that is love. That's love. She said she loved us before, but now I know. Because honestly, I don't know, as your pastor, what I would have done. If that was you, I might have let go of Asher and pretended I had to run catch him again, you know maybe faked a phone call. I don't know. I don't know that I could have done it. When I saw what she did, I was reminded of this passage there at the top of your outline. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children. Let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. You know that phrase, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth originated at the Last Supper. Jesus was with his disciples and the time had come for him to return to the Father. And so he calls them in and they're sitting there and he says, dear children, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. And what's interesting about those two phrases, dear children and this new command to love others with our actions, they're not used anywhere else in Scripture except for in the Last Supper and in the book of 1 John. That moment so captured the heart of John the disciple that when it was time to write this letter to churches in the region, he wanted to make sure they heard that, one, you are children of God, and because of that, we have to love people with our actions. What Jesus was communicating To them was up to this point your discipleship the evidence of your discipleship has been that you accompanied me when i got into a boat you got into the boat when i multiplied the food you were the one to distribute it i've taught you how to pray how to heal people have seen you with me and they the evidence of your discipleship has been that you followed me but i'm now returning to the father at this point you can accompany me no more So the evidence of your discipleship is going to be by the way that you love one another. There in the Last Supper, he finished that meal by telling them, this then is how people will know that you're my disciples, how you love one another. Well, he wasn't just calling them here to behavior modification. He wasn't just saying, hey, I need you guys to start acting different. I need you to really be focused on other people. It wasn't just a behavior, because God cares just as much about what motivates it. He cares just as much about God doing a work of love inside of us, that that might motivate or drive all that we do. 1 Corinthians 13 on your outline says it this way, If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing." If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but have not love, I gain nothing. If I don't have love, regardless of the things that I do, I have nothing, I gain nothing, I am nothing. If there are 15,000 people here this weekend, there are 15,000 different kinds of people. And what's unique to every single one of us is that God's call on our lives is that we would not just love those that we know or those that it's convenient for us to love, but that we would be the kind of people that are willing to get our hands dirty, that we're willing to love others with our lives even when it hurts. And so today what I've done is kind of break all people down into three simple categories so that we can look at how we might best love them, the first of which is there on your outline. Children of God love people who are, number one, like us. We love people who are like us. Take just a minute there out beside that point and write down the names of some people in your life who are like you. If you were going to go out on a a double date with your spouse one night, uh, this might be one of the couples that you would call. Somebody that conversation just comes naturally. You enjoy being around each other. Ladies, if you were going to go out on on a girls' night and you wanted to borrow an outfit... Maybe this would be one of the girls that you would call. Guys, if you were going out with the fellows and you needed to borrow an outfit, this might be one of the guys. (laughs) We don't do that. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, If you were going to spend the day at the beach, hang out, have some fun, this might be the person that you would call and invite to go with you. There's a good chance that you are already loving uh, the people in your life that are like you well with some degree of of action, that people would look at it and see it. Because it's these folks that you reach out to when you get in a bind. If your car breaks down on the way to work, this might be one of the people that you would call to bum a ride. If your childcare fell through and you had something going on, these might be the, the people that you would call to help you out. Chances are you're already loving them well. The question then is what keeps us from loving people who are like us well? There's probably a lot of of answers here, but the two that come to mind for me are comparing and competing. Oftentimes when people that are like us, when we spend a lot of time with them, we begin to evaluate our life up against theirs. We say, man, they're always so happy together. He's always holding her hand. They always seem to be flirting. He always puts his arm around her. She always opens her car door. You don't even tell me I'm pretty anymore. Or she's always getting her hair done and her nails done, but I always have to do my own hair and do my nails myself. Or she always looks so cute. He always, they have the nicest cars. They go on a vacation every single year. We never go on vacation. Or you'll look at your house and their house, and you'll start to think about your job and think, man, we work just as hard as they do. How is their house so much nicer? How do they send their kids to this school or that school? Why do our kids look like that? Their kids are always so cute and they get their initials on everything. A lot of people do that. It's like I know what your dress you're wearing it, dude. I don't even need your initials. Anyway. <laughs> Personal thing, I'm sorry. <laughs> but when we compare ourselves to others, we lose the ability to genuinely love them well because we're focused on desiring the things that they have. If we're not careful, we can begin competing with them. Something great will happen in their life. They'll get a new job. They'll, they'll get married. They'll have a baby. The limelight will be on them. But because we're tight, man, we start scrambling because we want some of that attention. I want something to celebrate. What's unique for us is that this isn't a an issue with our generation. It's not just because of social gram, social gram, <laughs> social media. We can't we can't blame it on Instagram. It's an age-old problem. One of my favorite examples is in Mark chapter 9. So with the disciples, they're on a trip with Jesus and this is what it says, they came to Capernaum when he was in the house, this is Jesus. He asked them, "What were you arguing about on the road?" But they kept quiet because they had argued about who was the greatest. So turn out here for the people that are like you in your life, have you ever had an argument with them about which of you were the greatest, (laughs) you know? (laughs) like, no, I'm so glad you didn't raise your hand because that would be weird, you know? We just don't do that. This is an extreme example because I love it, but I love it because oftentimes I think some of those thoughts, they're sinful and messed up and don't look at me like that because I know you do too, you know? (laughs) We don't say them because we know better, but we think that way. Man, we'll compare ourselves with others. We'll compete with them. And it robs us of the blessing of the relationship that God has for us. So what is the, what is the remedy for comparing and competing with those who are like us? Paul gives us a good solution in Philippians chapter four there on your outline. It says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. Will you underline that word for me? Content. In any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. The remedy is that we can choose contentment over comparing and competing. Last week, I was on a walk with Anna Jay. It was late one night, and we had to take Sunday out for a walk. And as we were doing that, um, Anna Jay said, Daddy, I love our house. And it was just a random, you know, comment. So I was like, where did that come from, babe? And she said, well, I was playing in the backyard today, and as I went to come inside, the sun was kind of shining on it, and I just thought, man, our house, our house is so pretty. And I realized when she said that that my, my vocabulary about our house was totally different. As the one who renovated it, I know all the places where I, I patched holes and have primed it but have yet to go back and paint it, you know, and we've been living there two years, you know. I know all the places where the subfloor is a little wavy and I wish I would have put down another layer of plywood. I know all the places where the windows or doors don't seal quite right and when I walk by them, I can feel the heat coming in. I look at our house and I see all of its flaws and as a result, I lust after new construction. <laughs> you know, when I see a new house go up, I think things like, man, oh, that would be so nice to live in a house that I could just live in You know, and maybe maintain things but not have to fix things, be finished with projects for a while, huh? that would be so great. And so as a result, because I do that, because I compare all the flaws of my house with those that I think are just great about a new house, I don't, I'm, I'm just not content with our house. But I realized on that walk, I was like, man, we have an awesome house. What am I like, what am I thinking? Where's my mind? I have to choose contentment. Otherwise, my flesh is gonna lead me down this road of comparison and rob me of the joy of the blessing that God's given us. So, as children of God, we love people who are like us. To best do that, we have to choose contentment. Number two there on the back of your outline, as children of God, we love people who are not like us. Not like us. Now, several of us here who are married may well have married a person that you are just like, and we're so happy for you. But the rest of us <laughs> have a testimony <laughs> of the life change that comes from loving someone who is not like us, it's amazing that God would use the covenant of marriage to unite me with a person that is so different than me, that could allow me to expand my capacity to love like no one else could, that God would use her to to press on me, to challenge me in ways that nobody else could, to help mold and shape me more and more into the image of his son. Well, what if that unique ability of a spouse who is different than you isn't just limited to the covenant of marriage? What if God wanted to use people who were not like us uh, to challenge us, to help change us in some way, help us have a different perspective? Who are the people in your life that are not like you? These might be people with a different political opinion than you. And it just so happens that they love to use Facebook to share their thoughts with the world. And every time you log on, you see some rant of there in your feed and your blood starts boiling. You're like sweating and mad. Gosh, talk with a friend. Don't post it to the world. This is so frustrating. Or maybe it's someone with a different religious faith conviction than you and, and you've had to stop having certain conversations because you disagree on some issues and it leads to an argument every time. Maybe you're somebody who uh, takes very good care of your yard. It's, it's just meticulous. It looks incredible. You cut it and edge it and blow it every week, but your neighbor hasn't done that in months. And you feel like their grass is so high that it makes your whole house look bad. The trash man comes, and you bring yours in after the trash man goes, but they leave theirs out two or three days. And you want to lovingly carry it to their front door, ring the doorbell, and throw it at them when they open the door. It's just so frustrating. Why do they act like that? They're so different. What keeps us from loving people who are not like us. There's probably a lot of things, but the first thing that comes to mind for me is criticism. Criticism. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this is of two guys uh, named Peter and Cornelius. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. He was a Jew. Cornelius was a centurion. He was a, a Gentile. And God had been doing this work in Peter's heart not to call anything impure or unclean that God had called clean. At the same time, God had been drawing this this Gentile uh, to himself and and told Cornelius, I want you to send for Peter that he might come to your house. And so a few days later, these guys show up at Peter's house and invite him to come and meet with this Gentile, which was socially just unacceptable at the time. But because of this work God had been doing in Peter, he says, okay, and he set out for the journey. And so in Acts 10, 28 and 29, we pick up on their conversation. It says this, he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? May I ask why you sent for me? He led with a question. The way that we can combat criticism, because that's often the case. We, we don't love people who are not like us because we tend to criticize them. We look at uh, the decisions that they've made. We look at the state of their, their finances or their personal health or their family. And we'll say, man, I just can't believe she would do that, he would do that. I can't believe that they would make that decision. They always seem to land here. We criticize them and fail to see them as the precious person that God has created them to be. But Peter's response here, may I ask why you sent for me? He led with the question. The way that we can combat criticism is through curiosity. We can choose curiosity over criticism. And every time, curiosity has a way of opening doors that lead to relationship, whereas criticism closes doors every single time. This past weekend, our staff uh, from all of our campuses came to the North Charleston Dream Center, and we took part in Adopt-A-Block. We worshiped together there at the campus and shared a meal, and then we packed hundreds of grocery bags of produce. And before we left that day, Pastor Sam uh, said, we were all sitting in the worship center and said, hey, I want to remind you of what the win is today. The win is not that we go out into our community and hand out all of these groceries. These groceries are just a tool that you might establish relationship. If you walk up to a house with a car full of groceries, knock on the door, they invite you in and you end up spending the next two hours in their living room getting to know them and hearing their story, and you fail to hand out any of these groceries, we want you to know that that is the win for the day. Man, I had some remarkable conversations. I met a guy who was 92 years old, married for 70 years and just lost his wife. His son and daughter had just moved back to North Charleston to move in with dad to care for him in this season. Just some remarkable conversations. People with with incredible stories. And as we left that day, man, I was reminded that relationship is the reward. People are the prize. John 3 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his son, each and every one of us, those that are like you, those that are not like you. When he looked upon the whole world, all of us, knit together in our mother's womb, made in his image, he numbered the hairs on our head, and with every single one of us, he so loved us that he sent his son. Why is it worth us really loving people who are not like us well? Because the kingdom is at stake. Heaven is gonna be full of people who are not like you. (laughs) So we might as well get used to loving them now. People's eternities are at stake. So as children of God, we love people who are like us. We love people who are, are not like us. And number three there on your outline, we love people who don't like us. People who don't like us. Some of y'all laugh. You got some haters. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) We love people who don't like us. Now, it's not very hard to love people who are like us. It's, It's harder to love people that are not like us. But it can be very hard to love people who don't like us. Now, why is that? I think it's oftentimes because the people who don't like us aren't strangers that have stereotyped us in some way. The people who don't like us are oftentimes people who have a reason to. Maybe it's an ex-spouse and your your separation and divorce was just ugly and painful. And you've never reconciled. Maybe it was a former employer, a boss that you got into an argument with and you left, just you left poorly. Maybe it's a, a good friend, and several years ago you got into an argument about something. You had a difference of opinion. You were angry. And a couple days turned into a couple weeks. Now it's been a couple years, and that frustration has turned into anger and resentment. Now you have hard feelings, and it's easier for you to just ignore the person, avoid the problem, than it is to try to seek peace. And oftentimes, as a people, we'll think, well, what's, what's so bad about that? There are thousands of other people in my life that, that I could meet, need to love, and care for, friends and family member. What's so important? Why does it matter for me to go back and reconcile this one relationship? It's important because in Matthew 5:9 in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The evidence that we are his children is our relentless commitment to fight for peace in relationship. Whenever there has been issue that we are going to people, we are going to be a people who attempt to right the wrong. The kind of people who are willing to humble ourselves and own our part in it. They, and we're not going to be able to do it all the time, obviously. We can't make people live at peace with us. But that people would see us try. I mean, it's a challenge. One of the best examples of this in Scripture is through Jesus on the cross. He was at a point where he had been, he had been mistreated, falsely accused. He had been beaten to the point of, of his life. Yet it's at the moment when he's on the cross, when he doesn't pray, God, I, I pray that you would show up and give these people what they deserve. They've mistreated me. They've dishonored you. God, show up and give them what's coming. Now his prayer there in Luke 23 was, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. See, they, they were not children of God. They were a people who were living in the darkness. And as a result, their actions displayed that to the world. They were doing the unimaginable, but his prayer was, God, may your kindness lead them to repentance not give them what they deserve, but God, may they come to you. May they come into a a relationship with you for people who did not like him. The Bible tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Man, the craziest thought for me in that scene of Jesus up on the cross, that prayer he was praying was for me. It was for us. We were enemies of God. And at just the right time, in just the right moment, he sent his son to die on a cross for me that I might have a relationship with him. And this is the mantle that he's entrusted to me, that he's entrusted to you as a Christ follower, that we would be that relentless in seeking peace and praying for those who don't like us. Now, chances are, if you were to make a list there on your outline of the people who don't like you, you would probably struggle to come up with one or a couple names even, because chances are you don't use that language. Uh, you, You would never say, I don't like him. I don't like her. She doesn't like me. We're enemies. We don't typically talk that way. But if you were to look at your calendar or look at your past relationships and evaluate your actions towards someone that you have conflict with, if you had to put language to it, there's a good chance it would sound something like we don't like each other. So what do we do? What's the remedy for that? James 4, 6 there on your outline says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. How do we overcome hard feelings? How do we love people who don't like us? We can choose humility over hard feelings. Choose humility over hard feelings. There in 1 John chapter 4, it says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love others, His love is made complete in us. What if, if you were to think about a relationship that you might have had where you had an argument and you've kind of parted ways, someone that you're not getting along with, that, that maybe that created in you some anger or anxiety or frustration that is now far removed from you today but has gone undealt with. What if that same anger and anxiety and tension has now creeped its way into your finances, into your health, into your other relationships, and you think things like, I, I didn't used to be like this. Why am I like this? That passage in First John 4 says, when we love others, His love is made complete in us. What if our willingness to humble ourselves To go back and call someone or schedule a lunch and say, listen, I know we don't hang out anymore. We never see each other. But man, this this deal went south a couple years ago. And I just want to apologize for letting so much time go by without us getting together and me trying to make it right. Scripture says, if we confess our sins to one another, that we will be healed. What if the freedom you've been desiring from anxiety, from anger, from frustration in your life, isn't gonna be experienced through more quiet times, but is gonna be found through your willingness to humble yourself, to repent of your sin, to get together with that person and seek peace. Dear children, let us not love just with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. We've always been a church that loved with our actions. Man, when Mother Emmanuel happened last year, the women of our church stepped up in the most remarkable way. Man, they started cooking meals, calling, how can we help? They showed up and they still have not left. When the flood happened last year, we had people bringing groceries, donating money, signing up for demolition and rebuilding before the church could even come up with a plan. When we launched our foster care initiative several years ago, we held an interest meeting for anyone that was interested in being a foster care parent, a respite parent, or resourcing those who were called to be. And we had 800 people show up here at the Mount Pleasant campus to help resolve that crisis. We've always been a church that led in love and action. But the call for us today, the challenge for us, isn't will we be a church that will, but will we be individuals that lead in love with our actions? This week, I got an email from three ladies here in the church, Danny and Holly and Melanie, and the email read something along the lines of, you are receiving this email because you're the parent of a sixth grade girl who attends custom during our 10 o'clock service. Wanted to take just a minute to introduce ourselves, let you know a little bit about us, why we, why we serve in this area, and some information about the, the calendar for the summer. So it, it had a picture of each of the girls and their families, a little bit of their testimony, when they accepted Christ, how long they've been coming to Seacoast. Let me know what I could expect about worship over the next couple weeks due to camp and a, a beach day that they were going to be having. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor John gave a message here on the weekend. It was a student takeover weekend. He casted vision for us being a, a people that would fight for the next generation. Introduced this phrase of not on our watch, not on our watch would we lose the next generation. We had students at every campus involved in worship, students who were serving in a bunch of different capacities at each campus. Chances are, if you were a seacoaster, you left that weekend proud to call this church home, thinking, man, that was a great weekend. But I want to tell you something. Not not as a pastor, but as a dad. What's going to make the difference in the life of a sixth grade girl is one of those three ladies saying, you know what? I'm going to step up and love with my actions. I'm going to make myself available. I'm going to give up my time. I'm going to use my gifts to invest in these girls man, they're in a season where it's time for me as a dad to to broaden her circle, to expose her as some some people, some friends who share my faith that are going to spur her on. That that phrase in Scripture literally means a kick in the butt. Daddy can't always do it, but I need some godly woman, you know. We're going to kick her in the tail when she needs it. Man, I got that email. and just said, praise God for their obedience. You know, as you hear this message today, chances are God is pressing on your heart in some areas that aren't new. You may have sensed them for a long time, whether that's to get involved here in the church, to serve in some capacity, to use the gifts that God's given you. Maybe it's in our community, whether it's through foster care or in partnership with the Dream Center or any countless number of other ministries or things going on. Maybe it's globally. Your heart breaks for some region in the world and God's calling you to pray or give or go. My plea for you today, dear children, let us not love with speech or words, but in action And in truth, that people would look at us and take note that we have been with Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you are a God of love. God, today may, first and foremost, may we encounter you. May you do a work of love in our hearts. God, draw us to yourself. I pray for a a radical encounter with you that would compel us to action. God, that we would leave this place today and and have no other choice but to move forward in faith that our yes would be on the table to whatever it is that you might be calling us to. God, as we head into response, we invite you in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.